The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. God has just been doing a revival in my own heart. Even though I've been a believer since 2007, I, uh, God is, I, I told my wife the other day, I feel like uh, with, God, with, with what God has been doing in my heart, I feel like when I was saved, initial, the initial stages of my salvation where it was like the honeymoon period, just want to tell everybody about Christ and you just want to keep reading his word. Um, like I have no taste for binge watching on Netflix right now or, or I just want to keep reading and, 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 and engaging with the Lord and God is so good. He's so good and, and we're just going to see his goodness and and, and not only what he's done for us and, and justifying us, but in, in, in giving us a place in his kingdom. Our passage this afternoon uh, was already but read. What I'm, I'm going to read it again. It's, in, it's found in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. Then they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's use our imagination for just a few moments here. Let's pretend that you're the CEO of a software company who just hired this new employee. This employee is trained up and supervised to learn everything that he needs to know to be equipped to do his job. After a month of training and equipping and watching and learning from the supervisor, the employees completed the initial training stages, stages and he no longer needs a supervisor. This new employee is given responsibility, uh, responsibilities to fix software bugs for several clients, high-end clients at that. However, after about a month, some of the other employees begin to complain about this guy. They say that he doesn't get anything done. Clients are calling in about deadlines not being met and how that's affecting their own businesses. And instead of you being the employee, instead of going directly to this guy that you hired, you, uh, uh, you decide to do some investigative work. You don't go to him directly. You go to the security cameras just to See, what has this guy been up, up to? Well, what's everybody talking about? And to your dismay, you see that this person that you've hired and invested in has been spending only one hour a day doing his job. And he's not been doing a good job at that uh, as well. And, and, and the rest of the time, he's playing video games. He's watching Netflix and uh, in his little cubicle. And on top of that, when he goes for his lunch break, he, which is supposed to be 30 minutes, he actually takes an hour and a half for his lunch break. He uses the company credit card for personal use. Now, if this was true, answer honestly. 
If you were the CEO of this company and you saw this happening, how would you feel about this guy? How would you feel about this guy that you've been uh, paying a six-figure salary to with full benefits and yet never got anything done? I'm sure that you'd feel frustrated, angry, taken advantage of, and uh, you might even feel like, I don't know, I'm still in the flesh. I might feel like smacking the guy over the head if I'm just being honest, right? I've invested in this guy and he's wasting company time, company resources. Sadly, I believe, as I observe, just if you observe cultural Christianity here in America, I, it's, it's the sad reality of many churches in America where God's people, God's disciples, Christ's disciples, have treated their calling as the, uh, to be disciples the same way as this uh, unfaithful employee that was hired by the CEO. You see, the the word disciple actually is the dominant word in the New Testament that describes believers. It's not Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament. And uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ, let's just define terms first. What is a disciple? We hear it all the time, but what is it? Disciples of Jesus are those who have been saved from sin and transferred into the kingdom of God and are being transferred into that same image, to the image of Jesus Christ. And in their functional role, they're being used by God to go out into the world and make more disciples. They're his instruments for kingdom work to propagate the gospel into all the world. Everywhere that God has placed you, you've been called to be a disciple, to make disciples. What a glorious calling that God has given you. Yes, he's forgiven you of your sins. There's nothing that can snatch you out of the love of God. Not not, not your own sins or anything else, but he's given you so much more. He's given you a place in his kingdom to be a disciple, to make other disciples. And in making disciples, you're making the glory of Christ known wherever it is that he's placed you. But the sad thing is many in America... Many in the churches today, we've been, as Augustine, uh, some have attributed this statement to to Martin Luther, but uh, others have said it was actually St. Augustine that came up with this phrase where he says that believers have been bent in on themselves, meaning they've been inward focused. And so I think that that's one of the main problems that that the church faces today, that we are so uh, self-focused. We're so focused on building our own kingdom establishing our own kingdoms here in this world. But God has given us a a great calling to to be his disciples who make disciples. Is that a description of you, a true description of you? Are you truly following Christ? Or are you following your own path, making out, carving out your own path? Our passage gives us an inside look as to how Jesus is beginning to delegate responsibilities to his disciples to live out or put into practice all that he's taught them thus far. Because you see, the point of being a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ is not just to be a learner of his teachings. That's part of it, right? Information. But it also involves transformation. It it also means that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to be both a learner but also a doer of what Christ taught. 
And the point is to grow more into his likeness. Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And Jesus Christ made disciples. That is the reality of his life. Yes, he, 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 he taught the, the truths of God. He displayed the, who God is. And, and yet uh, one of the things that he's displayed, displaying to us is, is how to make disciples. And I'm reading, I'm preaching through the, the gospel of Mark right now. And it just amazes me just as I'm starting to see what Christ was doing prior to his ascension to the Father. And um, here's the amazing thing. Uh, in one of the main themes in Mark is the kingdom of God. He preaches in, 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 in Mark chapter 1, he, he tells, uh, he, he starts preaching and he, he begins his ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't, di you can't divorce this passage from what Christ was, uh, his purpose and his mission statement in, in, in Mark chapter 1. He was ushering in the kingdom of God of God through his ministry. And in this passage this, after, in this, uh, this morning, there are four principles of dis discipleship that we, can, uh, that we can gather from from what Christ is doing. The first one is that disciples possess delegated authority. Disciples possess delegated authority. That's verse 7. The second one, disciples rely on ultimate authority, verses 8 and 9. And the third one, disciples entrust outcomes to sovereign authority, verses 10 and 11. And then the fourth point, disciples operate under kingdom authority, verses 12 through 13. The first point, disciples possess delegated authority. Disciples possess delegated authority. Verse 7 says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The passage tells us that Jesus called the 12 men that he's been personally discipling, those that, he, that, he, that he's called to himself. These are the men that have been learning from his teachings and observing his life, listening to what he's been telling the people. They, they now come to the next stage of their discipleship training, and it's no longer just the intake of information. They now have to take and put into practice what they've learned from Christ, what they've observed and heard from him, and put it into practice. Just as birds have to one day leave the nest and learn how to fly on their own, these disciples have to leave the nest of the classroom and go out into the world to put into training, put into practice everything that they've observed their Lord and Savior do. And a key thing to note is that the authority in which they're operating under. Verse 7, it says that, that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. This implies that they don't have inherent power or authority in and of themselves. They're not intended to rely on their own strength, their own power as Christ sends them out. It's been conferred to them. Furthermore, the authority that they have, it has jurisdiction over the spiritual realm. The text says that they have authority over unclean spirits. Their work was spiritual in nature. Think about this for a moment. 
The work of the kingdom isn't essentially physical. It involves that, of course, but kingdom work is spiritual in nature. Many churches focus on programs and policies and so forth, and those are all important things. We need those things. But we, we, we should never forget that the essence of our work is spiritual in nature. L listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world. Do you see, when you're out, when, when you're sharing the gospel with your friends, your family, your neighbors, you've got to remember that they can't see because someone is blinding their hearts. There is, the, the work of the kingdom is spiritual in nature. Therefore, don't think that hey, just because you share the gospel that that's going to get it done. You need to rely on the spirit as you proclaim, as you share the gospel. It's spiritual in nature. Furthermore, Romans, 1, 1, Romans chapter 1 tells us that the, the fallen world, that Gentiles suppress the truth, right? So it's not just spiritual in the sense of uh, demons and Satan blinding the hearts of the world from seeing. In, 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 in sinners' fallen nature, they are suppressing that gospel that you're sharing with them. Therefore, we need to be a praying people if we want the gospel to advance because, and we need to be rem uh, reminded that um, the, the authority in which we operate under, it's not our authority. It's delegated authority from Christ to us to accomplish the work of the kingdom. This is true not just for evangelism and discipleship, but this is also true for our sanctification, right? Growing in Christ's likeness. How many of us are trying to gain victory over sins uh, but are trusting and relying on worldly or fleshly instruments or means? How many of us are turning to the wisdom of the world rather than turning to the wisdom of God's word? And maybe it's because we've forgotten that, the, the, that kingdom work is essentially spiritual in, in nature and that, that there's more than meets the eye. Second, like, just listen to this passage. And if some of you are struggling with sins and so forth, you find yourself like stumbling. You can't gain any victory over your sin. Second Peter 1 verse 3, it says this. His divine power, his divine power, not our power, not our strength, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence. So it's not just discipleship or evangelism, but in our own personal sanctification, you can't rely on your own strength. You need to look to a source outside of yourself, an alien power, an alien authority that's not found in your willpower, but in the power of God. Furthermore, don't miss the fact that they're doing exactly what Jesus was doing. In, in, in him saying, sending them out to, to, to cast out demons, to go heal and preach repentance. This is exactly what Jesus has been doing prior to this point. Jesus also exercised authority over the unclean spirits. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 34. It says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Mark chapter 1, verse 39, he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
chapter 3, verse 22, he was accused by, uh, by the people, uh, by, by casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And then chapter 5 of Mark, remember the, the, the encounter that he had with the man with the demoniac, and, and he delivered that man. That man was just wanted to follow Christ, but Christ said, no, go back home. Go tell your friends. Go tell your family all the mercy that God has given you. So the takeaway from all this is that uh, Jesus is transitioning his disciples from information to action, knowledge to practice. He's preparing them for when he leaves to go to the Father and when he gives them the great commission. But then here's the thing, as, as, as I, I said earlier, the, the, how does this tie into uh, the beginning of, uh, of the Gospel of Mark where Christ is uh, talking about the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't, uh, and I'm just, this, these are just some, some things that I've been formulating, meditating on in, in, as I read through the gospel of Mark and uh, I think of what God is doing. It's not, just he, it's not that he's just giving them duties to do for the sake of doing duties or making disciples. In uh, what's happening with the disciples and, and, and all that God is calling to himself, all the people that Christ is calling to himself is that it is a restoration of the image of God. As the, the kingdom of God is penetrating through this world, it, he, he's restoring his image bearers. It, the, notice the, the, the language that's being used here. He's gave, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. What was Adam given in the garden? He was given dominion over the entire world. These guys that, that Christ is training up and he's calling to himself, he's restoring the imago Dei in them, the image of God, and they're calling to rule this world. This is like a foretaste of what's to come when the kingdom of God is fully uh, consummated in our world. It's more than, you see what I mean? Like I, I, I've been emphasizing in my own life that justification, the forgiveness of our sins, it is a glorious gift from God, but he, he's also uh, restored the image of God in each and every one of us. And, and don't divorce that from, from the reality of your calling to be disciples. It ties into the kingdom of God. But then I think that many Christians just, are stuck on just intake of information, intake of Bible knowledge, and they fail to move from information to action. You ever hear the phrase, uh, don't be a fool, stay in school? It's a pretty popular phrase, and, and I think sadly that many Christians practically live that saying out and always stay in the classroom. They never want to graduate. They're like that phrase, super senior. You guys ever hear that? Like the seniors that never graduate, they're like, 30 years old, they're still a senior in high school. <laughs> Many Christians accumulate piles and piles of knowledge and never put their knowledge or their, the degree uh, that they have in, in the school of Christ into practice. Many Christians, followers of Christ, disciples, come to church Sunday after Sunday, attend Bible study after Bible study, but how much of what you've learned or what others have learned are, are they putting into practice into everyday life? We've got fat heads and, and, and nothing to show for it in our, how, 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 how that truth of Scripture is, is actually affecting our hearts and, and manifesting itself in how we live. 
How many of you call yourselves disciples? How many of us are making disciples? When kids learn to ride a bike, they initially ride the bike with training wheels, right? And eventually they take off the training wheels because they've served their purpose. How many Christians are still living, even after being a Christian for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, still living and riding the Christian life with training wheels on? You have been given delegated authority by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to live out your calling, your glorious calling, not to just exist, but to walk in this world reflecting the image of God and how you make disciples. It's the, it's, I know what I'm saying seems like a hard message, one of those convicting messages, but uh, it, what is the, um, there, there's, if you remember in, in Hebrews chapter 5, what does the author say in Hebrews chapter 5? He says, about this time we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid milk, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world, in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Live out your calling. Remember that you have been given delegated authority from your Lord and Savior to live out your calling as a disciple. The second principle of discipleship, disciples rely on ultimate authority. Verses 8 and 9, it says that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Verse 8 says that Jesus charged them the Greek word that he uses here was commonly used as a military term with regards to officers giving the troops orders. It, it's true that Jesus loves you. He loves me. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt because Scripture says that. But don't treat our relationship with Jesus merely as casual and not reverently. Don't get it twisted, brothers and sisters. Jesus is both your Savior, my Savior, but he's also our Lord. His charge to them was to be minimalistic for their journey. They were to take nothing with them except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, and only one tunic. Now, in order for us to prevent uh, misapplying this text to us in our context, we've got to remember that the, the cultural context in which Jesus was speaking into, in the Jewish culture and in the Middle East at that time, still today as well, it was common for strangers to be welcomed into people's homes. Uh, they, they, they had a high view of hospitality. And uh, for, for the Jews specifically, because they were once sojourners themselves. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It would have been culturally expected that these disciples, as they were sent out by Christ to be cared for by people, that they encountered in the villages that they entered. But be that as it may, 
it wasn't necessarily guaranteed that they would be welcomed. So with their call to be minimalistic and leave themselves at the mercy of others to provide for them, Jesus was essentially telling them to rely on God and trust in him that he would provide them everything necessary to fulfill their mission. And in this case, to provide them with shelter as people looked favorably towards them, the command to be minimalistic is more culturally conditioned. However, the principle of trusting God to provide for us to accomplish the mission of God is universal and applicable to you and me today. In our efforts to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Christ to those around us, we shouldn't worry about the provision. Our main concern and focus when it comes to answering God's call to serve him in kingdom ministry isn't to focus on our provision, rather it's to focus on our provider. Even when it seems like, Lord, how am I going to do this? How am I going to serve you when I've only got, the, the church is only paying me this much or whatever? And God has shown himself to be so faithful because he's ultimately responsible to fulfill his mission. We're not. So the third, moving on to the third principle, disciples entrust outcomes to sovereign authority. Verses 10 and 11 says this. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. The apostles were, were sent to engage people with the message of the kingdom. And notice carefully that they weren't sent to call people to come back to the synagogue. Hey, hey, let's, let's, let's call people to come back over here. They weren't giving people tracts and church business guards saying, hey, this is what time our church meets. This is where we're located. Come here. I'm not against that. I'm not, we have those at our church. However, they took the initiative to take the message of the kingdom to people. They took the initiative to take the message of the kingdom to people. They didn't wait for people to come to church, to come to the synagogue, church don't wait for people to come to church. Don't wait for people to, to come here so that you can therefore share the, the, the news of Christ with them. The reality is they might never come. You can get off the bench. Jesus has given you game time. You're not a bench warmer in the kingdom of God. You have a place in the kingdom of God. Doesn't that excite you? to know that God has given you a special place. You see, this is how we guard from a message like this from being legalism or, or legalistic in nature. Because in your call to make disciples, you're living out your identity in Christ. It's not, you're not doing this to earn anything from God, to earn righteousness, merit, or favor from God. When you make disciples, when you're launched out into the world, into your neighborhoods, your workplaces, making disciples, you're living out your identity in God. Uh, the two questions that I've been answering, uh, asking myself and, 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 and seeking to, to, to permeate my, how I live and, and uh, to, to, to determine how I, why I do what I do is two questions. Who is God and who am I? Those are the two questions that are, are governing my, my, my life right now. Who is God and who am I in relation to him? 
And this is an exciting thing to be confronted with, with, with what God, is, what Christ is doing with his disciples here. He's doing with you as his disciples. And then notice that it says that uh, if they don't receive or listen. The term receive in the New Testament is synonymous with believe. And, and so in this context, Jesus is telling them not to worry if people believe in the gospel message or the message of the kingdom that they're to, pure, to preach to, to the world around them. Regardless of whether or not anyone received their message, they were to obey. This also implies that they weren't to force people to believe in the message of the kingdom of God, to follow Christ. And this is precisely where the crusaders went wrong and where the Spanish Inquisition went wrong, where they forced people to convert to Christ by the sword. God's the one, what they failed to, to see or know from Scripture is that God's the one in charge of the results of converting people's hearts to him. It's not us. If they reject the gospel message, their blood is on their hands, not yours. You're just called to obey. You pray and you proclaim. And this is what's meant when Jesus tells them to shake the dust off their feet. You see, it signifies them treating their fellow Jews because they're not sent to the Gentiles yet. They're sent to their fellow Jews. And whatever Israelites left the promised land and came back to Palestine from Gentile nations, what they would do is shake off the dust off of both their sandals, but also their clothing. And this was a, a sign to the, the Gentiles that, the, that they would dissociate themselves from the pollution of Gentile peoples, as well as the coming judgment that they would receive. When is the last, so when is, I've got a question, it's a practical question of, when's the last time that you've shared or witnessed the gospel to someone in your life? In this, in this last week, and, and this is not like a checkoff list or guilt, it's just like, just remember the context of this message. You have been given the privilege to be a disciple who makes disciples, ushering in, bringing in the kingdom of, of God, or rather God bringing in, causing the kingdom of God to bear upon the people in your lives. And when's the last time that you've shared the gospel with someone in your life, whether it's your co-worker, your family, your friend, or your neighbor, some stranger that you've shared the, the Christ with, or if you've not shared with them, at least prayed for them. So I, my wife and I, the last, uh, this, is, this is just practical ways. You could come up with your own ways. You know, I just, I, like I said, I want to give you information. I want to help you try practical ways to engage your community or where God has placed you. In the last two years, my wife and I um, have been doing, uh, during Christmas, a, a block party in, in our neighborhood. We live on a court, and we were, like, unsure how many people would show up. But the last two years, um, uh, it, we had a really great turnout. My wife made flyers and put them on the doors of every neighbor and said, hey, um, bring cookies, make something, and we're just going to go at the end of the court and just hang out. And um, several people came. And this one, uh, it, there was a, a bigger turnout uh, and then, then last year. And, um, and then even somebody said, like, we've got to do this more. 
let's not just do this once a year. Let's do this like maybe like more than once a year. And I was like, yeah, we could, let's think about doing quarterly. And, and see, you see that what's happening there? We're just living out our, we're not special. We're just living out our calling. We're living, our, we're living on mission for the kingdom of God to reach these people. We're not just hanging out with them to, to hang out with them either, to have cookies and, and hot cocoa with them. I'm praying for these people. Uh, my wife has established and built a relationship with our neighbor who just lost her uh, husband and then her mother, like within a span of uh, a few months from each other. And, uh, and yet uh, she's engaging with this, this old gal just to, 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 with, with building relationships, sharing the gospel with her. You know what's interesting? In the neighborhood that the Lord placed us in, we just moved there a couple years ago, the, the, the guy across the street from uh, like a few houses down from us, as many of you know, I shared my testimony uh, briefly, parts of it anyways. I, I'm a former gang member. And across the street, a few houses down, is a member of the gang that I was in. And, um, and he's, he, was at this, um, he was at this blog party. I was like, hey, man, you, you should come with your family. And, uh, and so he came. And uh, just building relationship with him and uh, reestablishing relationship with him, right? And, uh, and then I invited him to church. But long before he ever got to church, he's already been confronted with, with, with Christ through how we've engaged him, right? And, and, and then now, um, the, the, so one of our friends, a really close friend of mine, is, is looking at 25 to life. Um, he's in jail right now. He's, he's in the process of... Uh, uh, he, the sentencing process and so forth, and um, he, he, my friend, had said, "Hey, let's go visit him." I was like, "Yeah, I've been I've been praying for him for years," and uh, and so uh, and and he mentioned him, he mentioned me to my friend. He was like, "Hey, man, Dennis lives right across the street," and he said, "Well, you know what? Let, tell him to write me. I want to know more about spiritual things." And and so I'm like, "Yeah, okay, absolutely, I'm going to write him." But then we want to visit him as well. And so we're looking at the end of the month to go drive down to San Jose, which is like a two-hour trip from where we're at. But that's two hours of conversation with this guy, right? But uh, that, that's, I, I don't say all that to make much of me. It's a, I'm just doing life. But how can you practically live out being a disciple where God has placed you? You see, like whether you're a... a, a a housewife or, or working somewhere is just a mundane job. It's, it's not mundane. It's not just any. It's, it's, it's bigger than what you see with your eyes because of what God is doing with you in your life. Through you, wherever it is that God has placed you, the kingdom of God is there. Do you realize that in, in, uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament and New Testament times, the word icon, uh, the, the image of, of kings were put on coins or and, and, and any time that, that that coin was there, it was like a sign that the authority of that emperor was there or they would establish stat, statues and in towns and cities of emperors and that, that statue signified the authority and presence of that king in that place. Are you and I not made in, made in the image of God? Therefore, wherever you're at, the presence of God is there. You've been saved. You and I have been saved from sin, but God has also given you a place in his kingdom. He is, re he is reestablishing his image in you and his presence in this world. Doesn't that excite you about making disciples? Not just sit around and, and, and not live out your great calling as image bearers of God. 
But this should also give us a sense of urgency, should it not? As uh, we're reminded of the coming judgment that people are going to face if they don't come to Christ. We should be rejoicing in the Lord for our salvation and our future reunion with Christ when we see Him and He makes all things new. But how about those who still don't know Christ? Does the coming future judgment upon non-believers give you a sense of urgency to proclaim the gospel with the people that God has placed in your life? The last point, disciples operate under kingdom authority. Verses 12 through 13 says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 12 says that they proclaimed, this is referring to their activity or the action that they were supposed to be doing. That they were to tell people to repent refers to the content of their message. Now, there's a tendency for people to live unbalanced lives. For example, I go to the gym and sometimes I might see a guy with a big chest and he's like walking around with his chest puffed up. And he could probably lift 350 pounds on the bench press. However, when you look down, he has chicken legs. He's, he likes to work out his upper body, but he neglects his lower body. He doesn't work on his legs. He skips leg days. That's unhealthy. That's not good. But I think that Christians are unbalanced when we present or share the gospel or who God is with them. Many people emphasize the love of God. We're quick to quote John 3, 16, the glorious love of, of God displayed there, revealed there. But uh, how many of us are, are, have uh, uh, tell people about Romans or John 3, 18, where it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever but, uh, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the, only, uh, the name of the only Son of God. We're quick to highlight God's grace, but do we ever tell people about the wrath of God or the discipline of God? I, uh, I think that Chris, God, is, God is not a chicken leg God, but I think we have the tendency to present the world with a chicken leg God when we overemphasize his attributes and neglect to tell them about his other attributes. Maybe it's because we're, we're afraid of rejection or some sort of reaction from the world. Whatever the reason might be, we're only telling people certain attributes. If we're only telling people about certain attributes of God and consistently silent about other attributes, we essentially tell people about a God of our own imagination. And when we do that, we are repackaging God to be a God that we think people might be more readily uh, ready to accept. And the message of repentance, church, is part of the gospel message. The reality is that the whole world is in rebellion against God. You know, when I was in jail, I got saved in jail. Uh, and, and people ask me, or I tell people, the, the, the phrase that sticks out to me uh, the most, and the brother that came and, and preached the gospel message, it was super basic. Uh, it was, and, and it, but it was so deep, it was deep enough to, to penetrate through my heart. And the phrase that I always remember hearing is, repent and believe. In Jesus Christ. Just that phrase alone was powerful enough to penetrate through my wicked heart and to transform me. But he wasn't shy about proclaiming the need to repent. My friend, some of you probably know him, Jason Jarvis. I just had a, a breakfast with him the other day, and we were at Panera. We were talking about Christ, and we were pretty uh, vocal about it. We were passionate, and this lady stands up like she's grabbing her order, and she says, hey, I heard what you guys were talking about. And then, um, and then Jason says, all you need is Christ. 
And, uh, and she's like, yeah, yeah, Christ, he, she, or whatever he is, right? And he was like, no, no, that's wrong. And, and so uh, we've, got to be, uh, we've got to be bold enough to, uh, to, to, to not, and, and, and uh, courageous enough not to just tell people about partial truths about God. We've got to give them the whole counsel of God. He is both a loving God and a, uh, a righteous and holy God. The fallen world wants nothing to do with the creator and instead wants to be the creator of their own world, carve out their own path, be the captain of their own destiny. The world doesn't want to live under God's loving rule and reign. And so the call to repentance is an indictment on people's sinful condition and rebellious attitudes toward God. For example, God created sexual intimacy, but the world isn't satisfied with God's ways so people turn to pornography, commit adultery, sleep around, marry non-believers, or redefine sexuality. God is the provider of all things, and yet when people don't get what they want, they either steal or go into massive debt by, uh, by uh, racking debt on, on their credit card. God is the author of speech and the creator of words. Uh, therefore, he gives us the blueprint or, or of how we should speak uh, with our mouths and how we are to speak as well. Um, they should be loving and truthful, but instead the world uses their words to cut and destroy their neighbors. You see why our message is unpopular to this fallen world, the message of repentance. The world doesn't want to submit to God's loving rule and reign. The message of repentance is a message to turn from self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and, and creating their own self-identity, and instead to turn to God, rely on him, to trust that he's sufficient and that he gives us our true identity as his image bearers. This message, however, must be spoken. The message of repentance is part of the gospel. As God's messengers, we mustn't be silent about this. Mark goes on and he tells, that the, uh, he tells us that the disciples cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, don't be so quick to leave here today and, and say, oh, wow, Jesus told them to perform exorcisms and heal. I'm going to go perform exorcisms and heal now. The point of this being included in this text is to point out that the message of the apostles were affirmed through the casting out of demons and healing. Their message was authenticated through the healing and through the exorcisms or the casting out of demons. You see, the broken uh, the casting out of demons and healing is, 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 is a sign that the kingdom of God was at hand. The broken world as they knew it was coming to an end. The kingdom of God was dawning and the fallen world has been invaded by Christ's heavenly rule and reign. And one day Christ will return to completely eradicate all that stands in opposition to his kingdom, to his glorious kingdom. No more pain, no more diseases, no more tears, no more wars, just joy unending. You see what's happening here is this is the reversal of the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3. God is taking back his kingdom from this fallen world. Christ is reversing the curse by reestablishing his image bearers to rightfully reflect the image of God. Remember, in, in, in the garden, there's what theologians call the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve, as, Christ, as God's 
vassal rulers in this world were to have dominion over the world, right? And they were also called to uh, go, go be fruitful and multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. What Jesus Christ is doing here, if you see, because later on he gets to the, the, the Great Commission, right? Which is really a restatement of be fruitful and multiply. As he says, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go be fruitful and multiply. Christ is giving you a glimpse of what's to come, that, that command. He's doing what he's going to command his disciples or his apostles to do in the Great Commission, to be fruitful. There's no plan B with God. This is plan A. We have a glorious calling, church, to be disciples. We are disciples and to live out our calling as disciples. Do you sense, church, both a, a privilege and urgency in all of this and what Christ is doing in the world and through you? The privilege of our calling, that you've been given a place, a part in, in what God is doing in the world. So whatever it is that you're doing, you might be bored with your life. Hey, I hope that this message would, would get you to, uh, to, to get your minds and your hearts to see, wow, God is doing something great and he has made me a part of it. He's included me in it. He's re reclaiming it to reestablish his rule and reign. This gives us, you see, this gives us the why of why we do discipleship a whole nother meaning. It's, it's not just make disciples for the sake of giving them more information about the word of God. As we make disciples, the kingdom of God is bearing upon the world around us. The kingdom of God is, is, is invading the, this fallen world. This is an amazing thing, and I just, it's gripped me so much. I've told my wife, like, my, I used to think that as I went through seminary, my greatest calling as a pastor is to preach Christ-exalting sermons, that that is my greatest calling. But as I'm reading scriptures and reevaluating what God is saying in his word, no, it's part of it. I'm to preach Christ-exalting sermons and messages, but I'm to make disciples who make disciples because in making disciples, God is working in and through us to, to, to invade this fallen world with his kingdom. Does that excite you? That you have, that God has given you this purpose, this calling, wherever you're at, wherever God has placed you, you have an amazing calling on your life. And it has eternal significance. And God is watching you each and every day. He is with you each and every day to fulfill that calling. And, and church, I've been, I've been where you're at, uh, where you're going to hear a message like this. And you're going to be so excited about this in the moments. And as soon as you walk out those doors, the enemy's going to snatch the seeds out of your heart. Do not allow him to do that. By grace, depend upon the Spirit as you leave this place. Meditate upon these truths that God has called you to, out of the kingdom of darkness and, and has transferred you into the kingdom of his Son. And you have a, an amazing purpose that God has placed upon your life. Do not forget it. Don't allow this to, to just go into one ear and out the other, but embrace it with your heart. Fix your eyes upon Christ and what he's doing through you and allow 
you, you're calling to make disciples be fueled by that. As you fix your gaze upon Christ, may His glory be the fuel as in your calling to make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much. You've saved us from Your wrath. You've forgiven us. And even though as we, we, many of us reflect on how we've failed to, to live out our kingdom calling as disciples who make disciples, even though we've failed, Lord, you don't love us any less. Even though we've failed you time and time again in Christ, we are perfectly loved by you. And so, God, may we be reminded that you are abundantly gracious to failures like us and that you're still willing to... to to use us even after we've failed. Lord, may that reality, the, the reality of your abundant and uh, abundant grace in, in, in us, to us, through Christ, propel us to live out our calling as disciples, to make disciples, and making Christ known. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.